It's Friday, that special day of the week when I dedicate this show to answering a question submitted by you, my spectacular listeners. Today's question is a good one. It's this. Why do self-directed IRAs even exist to begin with? My friends, this tale is replete with scandal, theft, dishonest labor unions, and the annihilated retirement savings of the employees of a once great American company. Strap on your seatbelts, folks. This one is going to get a little bumpy. I'm Brian Ellis. This is episode number 213. You're listening to Self-Directed Investor Radio, America's only podcast exclusively for affluent self-directed investors, where every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you receive innovative investment strategy and deadly accurate market analysis that's untainted by Wall Street and unblemished by government propaganda, all in seven minutes or less. Coming to you now from the SDI360.com studios, here's your host, Brian Ellis. Hello, SDI Nation. Welcome to the podcast of record for savvy, self-directed investors like you, where you learn how to find, understand, and profit from exceptional investment opportunities in each episode. Today, we answer a great question. Why do self-directed IRAs even exist? Now, this is a perfect starting point for a broader training series we're starting with you today called Self-Directed IRA Fundamentals, and I think you're going to love it. For you folks who are fans of the Self-Directed 401k, and look, I'm certainly among that number. I love that kind of account. You guys just hang with me. We'll get to the 401k Fundamentals series very shortly, and you're going to find a lot in this series that you love too. Okay, so let's dive right in. To understand the present, you've got to understand the past. And where retirement accounts are concerned, the past is really pretty fascinating. Could make for a pretty good movie script. Let's set the stage. Back in 1852, a company called Studebaker Brothers Manufacturing was formed. They built wagons for farmers and the military, things like that. Just after the turn of the century, Studebaker jumped into the auto manufacturing business. And for the next 50 years, they really built a strong reputation in that industry because they they did make good cars. They had to. The auto industry was a major point of pride for America at that time in the middle of the 20th century. The big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler in its various incarnations, were in hyper-competition mode with each other and with Studebaker. Now, the problem was that Studebaker was poorly managed and endured years of financial problems that were made worse by the intense competitive pressure they were feeling from the big three, all of whom were just happy to hire away Studebaker's employees. Studebaker was feeling the burn in a big way, which led them to take a couple of actions. First, they merged with another manufacturer called Packard in hopes of achieving some financial strength. That didn't end up working. Second, they repeatedly increased the pension benefits they promised to their employees during the 1950s and early 60s. At that time in America, big employers were, quite foolishly I believe, tending towards promising not just a salary during the working years, but also specific defined benefits to employees that remained with them until retirement. In essence, employees were promised a salary during retirement as well as during their working years. And that promise wasn't tied to investments or anything. It was unconditional. That's how Studebaker got people to stick around. Rather than raising current salaries, which they couldn't afford to do, they repeatedly promised increases in retirement benefits for people who remained employed there. They continuously made these financial commitments for the future, but they never adjusted what they were doing with their money in the present day. Sounds a lot like the good old federal government, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, few industries are as highly unionized, and you should interpret that as financially restrained and totally hamstrung, as the auto industry. Specifically, the United Auto Workers Union was then, as they are now, firmly ensconced as the legalized extortionists of that part of the U.S. economy, 
ostensibly claiming the intent of maximizing economic benefits for their members. But you got to wonder, why didn't the UAW notice what was blatantly clear to anyone who had as much information as they did about Studebaker? That Studebaker was simply making promises for future benefits that couldn't actually ever happen. I suspect, as the Wall Street Journal observed, that the UAW reckoned that it was better for them to be able to claim that they'd won an increase for their members, albeit a future one that they knew would never actually happen, rather than to admit that Studebaker was going bust, likely in large part because of how high the UAW and other unions had driven up employment prices and driven Studebaker out of business. But I digress. So ultimately, the stuff really hit the fan for Studebaker in 63 when they ceased operations and terminated their pension plan. That's right, they nuked it. Now in those days, Washington didn't tend to bail out businesses as readily as it does now, and so Studebaker's employees, who'd been promised a big pension and many increases on top of that, they were left without a job and without a pension. A really bad situation, for sure. And Studebaker wasn't the only one. It was really heavily focused in unionized industries like steel and airlines, to name a a couple, that all tended to face wide outbreaks of bankruptcies, swells of pension failures, and general economic nastiness in the following several decades. So what did the government do? What they always do, they pass laws. In 74, a new law was created called Employment Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA for short. And it was actually a rather substantial piece of, of legislation. On the one hand, this new law forced private employers to buy insurance for their pension and also required those employers to actually fund the pensions. Notice that this only applied to private employers. It didn't address public pensions at all. You know, government pensions? Because we wouldn't want to force any accountability under the government now, would we? We see how that's turned out. But again, I digress. Now, on the other hand, ERISA actually did something directly useful for the little people in America like me and you. It created a new type of financial account, the individual retirement account, the idea of which was to encourage retirement savings at the individual level through tax incentives and to thereby decouple retirement savings from employment. That's where the IRA came from. That's its history. Now, additional kinds of IRAs have been introduced over the years, like the SEP IRA, the Simple IRA, and other variations. And also in 97, another law was passed that would create a related but fundamentally more powerful version of the IRA called the Roth IRA. That changed everything for the better in a huge way. But hey, we're not interested as much in IRAs generally as in self-directed IRAs specifically. And those words, self-directed, those are really important words. Now look, folks, you probably already know that with practically every IRA in existence, you have precious little freedom with how to invest that money. The only real exception is if you have an account with one of the handful of truly self-directed IRA custodians. Even if your account says self-directed, like those at stock brokerages like Schwab, E-Trade, Fidelity, etc., the truth is you can't actually buy anything other than publicly traded securities. You can't buy real estate. You can't buy, buy private companies or anything other than the standard stuff. So they're clearly not actually self-directed. So the question is where and why did the almighty self-directed version of the IRA come into existence? Folks, the answer to that question is fascinating and surprising. I'll tell you the answer in an upcoming episode of this very show. And the link to that show is available on today's show notes page, which is sdiradio.com slash 213. The rest of the story is there. So if you enjoyed this show, If you learned something you didn't already know, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend about SDI Radio, or maybe stop by iTunes 
and give us a five-star rating. You can get to our iTunes page at sdiradio.com slash iTunes. My friends, invest wisely today and live well forever. Thank you for listening to Self-Directed Investor Radio with Brian Ellis. Don't miss a single episode. Be sure to subscribe to Self-Directed Investor Radio right now on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at sdiradio.com. Your feedback is always welcomed via email at feedback at sdiradio.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as legal or professional advice for your situation. Content is the property of the Self-Directed Investor Society. 